Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. If you have your Bible, Philippians chapter 2, go ahead and turn there. Um, if you need a Bible, you can put it in your lap. Feel free to grab one from the side of the tech booth. Or if you're a user of the Bible app, you can open up our app, that app, excuse me, and find our live events and track along with scriptures, sermon notes, etc., etc. Um, so we as a church family have been working our way through these core doctrines with this um, idea about pillars, things that we want to remember because these are things that are true. They were true um, yesterday. They were true last week. Uh, they, they were true um, back in uh, the, the mid-2010s. Uh, they, they were true um, before you were born. They were true 1,500 years ago. They were true 2,000 years ago. These are things that are true. And they'll also be true tomorrow and the day after that and next week. And when things go your way um, a year from now and two years from now, if they struggle to go your way, they'll still be true. These are pillars that we want to um, kind of build our lives on, root our lives, uh, uh, put the building of our lives on these things. And so um, a couple weeks ago, we kicked off with God is Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that we just sung about last week. uh, Well, that um, the doctrine was uh, the Trinity, that uh, God is eternally existing um, one God eternally existing in three persons. Last week we looked at God the Father, um, that the perfect and powerful God uh, of the universe. Our, our Heavenly Father is the one who rules all of it. Uh, he rules the universe. Uh, today we've got the Son. Next week, just if you're guessing, next week we have the Spirit. Y'all are doing great. Okay, y'all are doing great. You know how this is going. Uh, Philippians uh, chapter 2, I want to read this. Um, anybody ever have this moment? It gets really frustrating for me. Um, I don't know what it is. It's probably because my car is old, but or older. But like the the windshield wiper fluid doesn't come out with enough oomph anymore. Like you you know like my motor or pump or something. It's not quite doing what it's supposed to be doing. And so when you get fog and and uh, like road grime and that kind of stuff, I mean you can turn on the wipers all you want to, but really what are you doing? You're really just smearing stuff all over your windshield, right? So much so that all you want to do is like, can I just stop somewhere and have somebody just spray it? That would be great. Um, this sermon is a little bit like that because uh, in our world, there's probably nobody talked about more in the history of humanity than Jesus. And yet at times, there's still grime on the windshield. Like it's not quite clear. It's just not quite clear. And so um, I want to um, try to clear some of that stuff out here shortly, but let's start with the text. Uh, Hebrew, uh, sorry, we're going to look at Hebrews in just a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Some of you may have a note there, something like a, a thing to be held onto for your own advantage. And that's, that's really the heart of it right there. Um, verse 7, but emptied himself, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So um, today we're talking about the Son. And uh, here's how I want to start, just as we've done this doctrine, if you will, stated. The doctrine of the Son goes like this. In Jesus, God became man to save us. 
We have tried to make these very short, very succinct, as sticky as we possibly can. Um, this, is, this is a biggie. I mean, this is the biggie, really. Like, this is the thing. In, in Jesus, God became man to save us. And really, in some really important way, that's like the entire message that Christianity offers to the world. In Jesus, God became man to save us. Again, uh, clearing just a couple of pieces of, uh, as much as we can, grime off of the windshield here. Um, some people say, uh, excuse me, let, let me just state it positively instead of taking up another's argument. Um, if we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Scripture says this. Jesus says this about himself. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. It's clear. He he is the best and fullest and most picturesque revelation of who God is to us. So that, that's, that is critical to understand as we think about this. In Jesus, God became man to save us. Uh, two things of note here. Um, one is there's two different words that are used here, especially uh, right here at the end. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, I want to just point these out. Lord um, is a position. It, it is the position for him. It, he's the king. He's the ruler. He's the chief. He's the boss. Lord, it's position. So when we think about Jesus, we're thinking about the king of kings that we just sung about. But he also uses uh, the phrase that Jesus Christ is Lord. I've been asked this before by people in this church. And so this is not a shot. This is just like some people think like Christ is somehow tied to the name of Jesus. Like Jesus, like Christ is kind of his last name. Like if you had to look him up in your contacts, scroll up to the seas because that's where he'd be. Jesus Christ. Christ is a title a role that he fulfills. So um, a little helpful thing to hopefully pull some of the threads together here. Um, In the um, Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, there was a promised one coming. Anybody know what the promised one coming, what his title or uh, role was? Anybody know what that, it starts with an M. Anybody? Messiah. Okay, the Messiah. When you take the Hebrew word Messiah and bring it over to the New Testament, the the, uh, New Testament word is Christ. So the Messiah is, okay, let's do it. The Messiah is, okay, perfect, good. We got all this, okay. So Jesus is the Lord, and that is the primary confession of Christianity since literally day one. Jesus is also the Christ. He is the Messiah. So anytime you're reading in the New Testament and you want to just insert the Messiah so that it it spins a little different in your head, you can do that and be absolutely right. Christ in the New Testament is the Messiah of the Old Testament, the Messiah of the Old Testament, the chosen one, the anointed one, the one who's going to bring deliverance to God's people. The anointed one is Christ. The Messiah is Christ in the New Testament. Okay. Hopefully we got the grime off the windshield there. Now we know. Um, uh, two big statements, and then we'll ask some questions here. Uh, two big statements coming out here, starting verse 6. Who? Jesus. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto for his own advantage. First statement, Jesus is God. In Jesus, the doctrine said, God became man to save us. Je- we start with Jesus is God. Do you see here... Um, where he makes that claim. He was in the form of God. Do not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. So just hold on here. Um, don't take form of God 
as something uh, less than God. Like uh, uh, there, there are people um, in the religious world who, who think that uh, form of God somehow means, eh, I mean, he's kind of like God. He's got like, he kind of looks like him or whatever, but he's not really God. That's not it. Typically, this, this shows up in this particular phrase, son of God. Now, there are folks in your religious world, in our religious cultures, um, who will show up knocking on your door trying to hand you uh, literature or invite you to a study or something like that, and they use the phrase, Son of God, and you go, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but what they mean by Son of God and what you mean by Son of God, or as a Christian, those are not the same things. They're not. They, they mean Son of God as in, like, offspring, like, Son of God, you know, like, yeah, there's a baby right over there. Like you have a baby, okay? They mean offspring in that sense. That would be a created being, maybe even a special created being, but nonetheless a created being. Jesus, the confession of the Christian church from day one is that Jesus is God. He is the Lord of all. He is not the form of God, the form of God. Uh, yeah, kind of like that. No, no, he's, he is God. Um, the, the way that I handle that, just so that you know, is that you, if you want to know if you're speaking the same language, you just flip it around. Oh, yeah, yeah. I do believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Here's a question. Do you believe that Jesus is God the Son? That's the question. You just turn that around. Son of God becomes God the Son. And then you have a very, very either short conversation or a very interesting one that follows. One of those two. The Son of God, as used by some, is not the same as God the Son. And so I just want to highlight that to say so. Um, don't take form of God as not, not quite God. Um, I just proved this to you again with the latter phrase in verse 6. He did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. If, if, if I'm going to release something, I have to hold it first. And he held on to equality. We go like he was God. That's what he's saying. Equal with God. He is God. Jesus is God. He also understood this about himself. And this is, this is important because Jesus didn't like rise to some divine um, uh, revelation or identity. Jesus knew this about himself. It wasn't actualization or realization. He knew this about himself. In John chapter 8, he's in conversation with um, some religious leaders, and uh, they're, they are, they're not in a conversation. They're in a fight. I mean, a good old-fashioned just brawl. And um, th- he says, look, you know what you are? You're the, you're, you, you, you are the sons of your father, the devil. I mean, can you imagine just roll that out at the office tomorrow? <laughs> Let me tell you, on this project, you are acting like, okay. I mean, just don't do that. He's having this conversation with them, and somewhere along the way, um, they get to talking about Abraham, and he goes, look, before Abraham was, I am. Whoo! The religious people, they were all riled up after that, torqued full on, right? Because if, if you remember the Bible stories, if you're not familiar with that, that's okay. But um, if you remember Bible stories, somebody else claimed he was I am, and it was God at the burning bush when he talked to Moses, I am who I am. And so for Jesus to pull that off, pull the old Blake Shelton, that's me, this is, this is a serious claim. I'm God is what he's saying. I am divine. In John chapter 10, I don't know if it was the same group of religious leaders, but it was another group. And he's talking to his followers um, uh, about how um, God, we are held in the hand of God. It's such a beautiful passage. We are held in the hand of God and no one can snatch us out of the father's hand. And then he comes along and says, I and the father are one. 
And the religious leaders of the day are like, where's that stone? I'm going to get this boy right now. Um, they, they, it literally says they picked up stones because he, by saying so, claimed to be equal with God. So Jesus understood this about himself. Jesus is God. It is fundamental to our understanding of who he is and our understanding of Christianity. Um, second big statement out of verse 7. But he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So there's that word form again, form of God, form of servant. And we'll have it again in just a minute, form of man uh, or human form. Um, again, this is substance. This isn't just like the outline of it. This is substance. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, he, he did not count equality. We got a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. God became man. That's the next big statement. It, it is like in summary Christianity. It really is. God became man to save us. The, the story, we just left Christmas time. You, you know this because the credit card bills are showing up, right? So we just, oh, that was funny. Um, but, but the story of Christmas is this part of the story that God became man, that, that, that the Holy it's beautiful language. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she conceived and, and um, bore a son and his name was Jesus. The virgin birth led to a sinless life. Out of all the years that Jesus navigated, out of all the conversations he got into, out of all of the opportunities um, that presented themselves to him and of all, of all the paths that he walked, he was sinless without even for a moment, sin. And that ultimately led to a sacrificial death. That's the, that's the arc of the story. And in his humanity, Jesus had experiences um, just like you and I have. God became man. And in, in this, he had human experiences. So, um, uh, well, you've got a couple of experiences up there. I mean, just read the Gospels. Jesus gets hungry. That's, that's an amazing thought. The one who made everything is here on the earth and he's hungry. He gets thirsty at times. The one who himself is the living water, that's how he said, is thirsty. He gets weary. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. Uh, the, they go out on a boat. Uh, he and his followers go out on a boat. And if you've been on a boat, like a cruise ship or other boat, like you've got, um, uh, uh, you've got the sound of the water a little bit and just a gentle rock. And how long does it take you to get tired? I mean, not very long, right? So Jesus is all like, y'all got it? He crawls up, kind of gets himself on a pillow, lays down, takes a nap. Because taking a nap is what Jesus would do, Yes. So this afternoon, you know what I'm saying? Like, go be like Jesus. Go be like Jesus. He gets tired, weird. He gets exasperated. There are points where he's just like, bro. Angry. In his humanity, he had human experiences. God became man. And so um, there, there are some questions that fall out of that. Let me just give you three of them. Um, these three may not be the only questions you have, but hopefully they'll cover a good, a good portion. Question number one, did Jesus somehow surrender his divinity or at least some of his divinity when he came to the earth? And the answer to that is no, no. In fact, not just no, no, like really no. 
Um, he was fully God and fully man. The, the kind of math, if you will, for Christianity is, goes like this. 100% God plus 100% man equals 100% Jesus. And I say that because some people, um, it's a little bit like one of the, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, gets us off track um, with, um, with the Trinity, where if we think it's a third God, uh, you know, a third the Father, a third the Son, and third the uh, Holy Spirit instead of 100%, like it can really mess us up. If we think like uh, Jesus is 50% God and 50% man, that, that's not how it works. He did not surrender any of his divinity. Um, it, it's 100% God plus 100% man equals 100% Jesus. That'll show itself even more important um, here in just a second. But let, let me just pull this together for us a little bit. Um, I, I think there is a twofold danger. One, uh, th- there's a d- d- danger of putting Jesus as historical figure. Like you put him in line. I mean, you got Lincoln and you got Washington and, you know, pick your favorite middle-aged person, you know, like the, from, from the Middle Ages and pick your favorite, uh, you know, European royalty or whoever it may be. And pick your favorite uh, person from, you know, whichever continent. Just pick a, you know, like, you got all these people, right? And you got Jesus in there. Like, you just look across the landscape of history and you're like, oh, yeah, that's a cool guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, Alexander the Great. Oh, yeah, over here. These people. Oh, yeah, Jesus. And you kind of have it this way. Um, the, the danger of Jesus as historical figure is that we forget he's God. 100% God plus 100% man equals 100% Jesus. He is a figure who historically lived, but he is God. The danger of Jesus, like maybe we focus not on the, on the historical figure part, a person who lived in history, but maybe we focus on the religious figure part. The, the danger of putting Jesus in the kind of pantheon of other religious figures. You got Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and pick your favorite other guy. You know, I mean, you just kind of put them where they go. The the danger of thinking of Jesus as a religious figure is that we forget he's human. The message of Christianity is that God became man. We didn't have to climb the mountain. God came down the mountain for us. He pursued us. God became man. Second question, uh, why does it matter that he was sinless? I mean, it's a fair question. We talked about he, him living a sinless life. Why does it matter uh, that he was sinless? I'm going to invite you, um, if you have a Bible in your lap, to turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Almost um, took the sermon from this particular text, but decided to do it this way into, instead. Hebrews chapter 2, um, we're going to look at verses 17 and 18. As soon as my fingers work enough to turn my pages. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to. It was necessary for him to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Let's just pause right there. We'll pick up some more in just a second. Why does it matter that he was sinless? First of all, his obedience represents or counts as our obedience. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. This is important because Jesus came, he lived a sinless life. Um, And because he lived this sinless life, the the standard of the Bible has not changed. A sinless life is what God requires. Anybody step into that this week? You're just like, yeah, man, dude, I, I pulled it off this week. I did it. No, you're excellent sinners, all of you. All of you. 
So we need someone to step in and live the life that we could not live. We need someone to, whose obedience is, is, um, is true and real and from the heart and, and accountable in its actions. We need someone to step in and let his obedience count where my disobedience failed. He had to become like his brothers in every way so that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest in the service of God. His obedience counts. For my obedience. That's really important. Because the righteous standard of God didn't shift. His obedience counts for our obedience. Second part. Because he was obedient, he can make a sinless sacrifice on our behalf. What kind of sacrifice does God receive? A sinless one, a perfect one. You and I, we could offer up a sacrifice. God would be like, eh, thanks. I mean, I mean, like a perfect sacrifice is what is required. And a perfect sacrifice is exactly what Jesus offered. He was a sinless sacrifice. Therefore, he could bear the sins of those who were not. He can make a sinless sacrifice on your behalf. Look at the end of verse 17. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a big Bible word. Um, if you've been around, you know the scale thing. We've done this in here before. Um, where, where my sin has weighed down the scales, Right? And there's nothing that I can do to try to even this sucker out. Like it's way too heavy. The interest rate is far too high on the credit card. I'm not going to make it. I need somebody to step in and pay my debts. I cannot do it on my own. And this is what Jesus has done. That's only half of it though. Because evening the, evening the skills, I mean, that's like a gift in and of itself for sure. But that's only half the story. The rest of the story is he purchased favor with God for us. Not just paying our debt, but purchasing that's purchasing favor with God. This is what propitiation means. He paid our debt and he purchased favor with God for us. He has done this. He is the perfect, sinless sacrifice on your behalf. I say that, church family, because some of you live with the story over your life. Like the thing that the, the flag that flies over your life is you are a genuine, I mean, full-on screw-up. And you can't get it off repeat in your head. And it, it is cut ruts in your soul. And I want you to know that there is a faithful and merciful high priest who has stood before the God of the universe and made propitiation for you. Jesus is the sinless sacrifice on your behalf. Lastly, verse 18 for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is able to come to the aid of those who suffer trial and temptation. Trial in the New Testament, trial and temptation. Two words, it's the same word, excuse me, two meanings to the same word. So what, what the writer of the Hebrews is saying, he was tempted, Jesus was tempted, he was tried, and he can help those who are tempted. Anybody go through a trial this week? You don't have to raise your hand. But if you did, I just want you to know, Jesus can come to help you. He is able to help those who have gone through trial. Why? Because Jesus himself went through trial. Anybody encounter temptation this week? Jesus is able to come to the aid of those who encounter temptation because he himself was tempted. You think to yourself, well, I mean, my trial, like his trial was pretty, like, my trial though, I just... 
I don't think I have it in me at this point to take one more step. I know I'm supposed to be faithful. I know I'm supposed to persevere. I know I'm supposed to keep going. I know I'm supposed to do, like, why? but I mean, this leg will not move a single step more. I can't do it. In that moment right there, Jesus, you come to the aid. You offer help to those who are being tried. Can you help me? And in some way, Jesus comes to aid those who are being tried. He knows what it's like to run out of gas. He knows what it's like to want to give up. He knows what it is like. I feel like I, I, can't, I cannot move on. He knows, and he is able to come and help those. Yeah, well, <laughs> my, my struggle is not that. My, my, my struggle is, is that I always want one more. One more glass. One more thing. One more whatever. I always want, like my... That's the temptation for me. And in that moment, you think to yourself, all I can think about in this moment is that one more. I want you to know that you can cry out to Jesus because he comes to the aid of those who were tempted. You may think, "Uh, Jesus was never tempted like me. Uh, My temptation's food. He's he was hungry. My temptation is desire in me um, towards another person. He 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 encountered that. My temptation, whatever it may be, he is able to come to the aid. So in that moment right there, you can cry out to Jesus, <laughs> you are the one who comes to the aid of those who are being tempted. That's me. Can you help? Please help. And he will. He comes to the aid. He helps those who are being tempted. You think, well, actually, like, thank you, Jesus. But, like, I want somebody who really gets it. Like, because I, I failed and you never did. Therefore, I'm pretty sure I may need somebody who failed before. No, no, no. You actually don't want that. If you want help, you want somebody who has been exposed and encountered the same thing and actually did the thing that you want to do but can't figure out how to do. You don't want the guy who's a four-time failure. You want the guy who's been victorious in this. Last question. Why does it matter that he was both God and man? Like both, and. Why does it matter that he's both God and man? Let me answer it two ways. Number one, um, it matters that he was man. He matters that he was human. Gregory of Nazianza said it this way, um, what is not assumed cannot be saved or redeemed. Um, what is that right there? What, what is that? It is, it is the idea that his life, because he came to be a human, he lived on the earth like you and like me, had flesh like you and like me, his humanity means that our humanity can be saved, saved, redeemed. Second, um, 
it matters that he was both God and man. It matters that he was God in particular because uh, Psalm 49 verse 7 says, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Uh, Again, I have these conversations with people who show up at my door, and as we get to the point where um, they're asking the questions, you know, about this or whatever, I just say to them, Hey, look, I know how deep and dark my sin is. I mean, you guys look all right. I just know how deep and dark mine is. Like the spiral goes down pretty far into this old heart. And if you're telling me that some guy, even if he's a really special guy, if you're telling me that some guy is going to die in order to redeem me, I'm telling you, you're a liar. Number one, nobody's going to do that for me. No guy, no person going to do it for me. Number two, the weight of this darkness would crush that person. The psalmist says, truly, no man can redeem another. No no one, no one. Um, No one, no man can ransom another. That's what it says. I don't need a person, even a special person, special human dying on the cross. I need God to step in and bear my sin for me because I could not bear it alone. And if somebody's going to pay that debt, it has to be someone who can bear the weight of all of that redemptively. That would never happen with just a human. It matters that he was God and man. And this is the way that you actually want it. Okay, last couple things here. Just quickly, back to Philippians 2. One of the questions is, so what? I mean, like, Thanks for all this. So what? Here we go. Um, Let's look at verse 8 again. Therefore, oh, excuse me, verse 8. I'm starting at verse 9. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's number one. So what? So what? He actually did what he set out to do. Three different times in the run-up to Jerusalem, like in the closing chapters of the Gospels, three different times, three different times, Jesus looks at his followers and goes, hey, kids, let me just tell you, we're going to Jerusalem. This is not a vacation. There's no verbo waiting on us there. Here's what you need to know. I am going to die. And three days later, I'm going to get up from the dead. Three different times he tells them this. And he did what he set out to do. You know what that means, church family? That the God that you and I follow, the God who became man to save us, is a faithful God. He did what he set out to do. And the second part is, um, at the end there, uh, where every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Lord of all. You want to know who's in charge? It's him. You want to know who's running the place? It's him. He is the Lord of all. And one day, every single person will see it. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So our response, number one, confess it now. Like go ahead and just say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Let your life confess it. Not just your lips, although that's critical, but let your life confess it. I have a king. It's not me. It's him. I have a ruler. It's not me. It's him. I have somebody I'm following. It's not my heart. It's him. Jesus is Lord. 
And secondly, back to verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Take the mindset of it. We've all lived with fear over the past three years. Two and a half, however you count it. Jesus is Lord. We've lived through a pandemic. Jesus is Lord. There's a recession coming. Jesus is Lord. Things are crazy over there in the middle part of Asia. Jesus is Lord. My body's not doing things they're supposed to be doing. Jesus is Lord. Things aren't right between us. Jesus is Lord. That's not to dismiss any pain or any step that you should take. That is to say all of it, all of it, from the macro stuff down to your little life, microscopic life, all of it sits in a context. And that context is Jesus is Lord. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, I'm telling you today can be the day that he can become your Lord, not just the Lord, your Lord. I'm going to pray for us and invite you to just ponder what the Lord has said to you and we will um, have a moment to respond together. But let's pray first. Take a second if you need to and kind of settle your heart. Father, we say to you, like in this moment, on behalf of folks here, we confess, we bow our knee and we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. There may be others who claim it. There may be others who want the position. There may be others who, who vie for it. There may be others who act like it. Or they may say to us that we're crazy because of it. But our confession is Jesus is Lord. Oh, Please marinate our minds in that. Please. And I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you as Lord. I pray that you would get a hold of their hearts and today would be the day that they come to you. I give you all of this now. In the name of Jesus, who is the Lord. Amen.